We finished Thyatira last week and we're starting Sardis, so we made it to chapter 3. Yes. Uh, and, and there's tons of stuff in chapter 3, including the rapture. So we will spend a little bit of time in chapter 3. But, yeah, lots of good letters. But first, we're give, the first letter is to Sardis, and the rapture doesn't come till Philadelphia. So we're uh, going to start with Sardis. I'm going to read you the letter to Sardis out of the unvarnished New Testament. And to the angel of the Sardis assembly, write this. Thus speaks the possessor of the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your actions, the fact that you have the reputation of being alive and you're dead. Look lively and straighten up your moribund remains. Moribund means dead and lifeless. Because I find your work to be incomplete in the sight of my God. Remember what it was like receiving the word. What it was like to hear it. And turn back to that and be sorry you let it go. If you don't keep awake, I will suddenly be there like a thief, and you won't know what time I will be coming to get you. But there are some names in Sardis that have not gotten dirt on their clothes, and they shall walk with me dressed in white, because they deserve to. So shall the victor be draped in clothes of white, and I will never rub out his name from the book of life, and I will acknowledge him by name in the sight of my father and his messengers. Whoever has ears, hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. Sardis was a little town. All these little towns are close together. It, it was an important town, much more important than, lit, than um, Thyatira was. Sardis is a much more important city. It was the capital of an ancient kingdom called Lydia. If you've ever heard the term rich as Croesus, have you ever heard that? Somebody is rich as Croesus? Well, it's a term that's still in use today, and it, and it refers to King Croesus. King of Lydia, capital of Sardis. Well, Sardis was on like a naturally impregnable cliff. Okay. So it, was, it could only be accessed from the south. It was like a kind of a peninsula of land. And it was on cliffs that were taller than the World Trade Center. Okay, that's, that's how massive these cliffs were. Well, because it was kind of perched on this promontory of land... The citadel part was kind of small, and then you had a lot more city down in the valley below. But there was this impregnable fortress up there. Well, on top of having natural defenses, there were gold mines in the area. And not only that, they didn't even have to dig for that gold, because gold dust flowed down the river into Sardis. So this king just got richer and richer and richer, and and nobody could come and take his riches because of his natural fortress. So he became very powerful and very, very rich. You would think King Croesus would become the most powerful king in in the area. Well, he was powerful, but he was also the last king of Lydia. So how did that happen? Well... What happened was Cyrus the Great, who we studied in Daniel, he was a great Persian conqueror, came to conquer the kingdom of Lydia. King Croesus comes down out of his citadel with his armies. They they fight. Cyrus the Great wins. (laughs) Okay. Well, Croesus just retreats up into his fortress and decides, you know, I can outlast this guy. I've got access to water. I've got plenty of food. There's no way they can get up these cliffs. I can just outlast him. Of course, Cyrus begins a siege. And about two, I think it was about two weeks into the siege, one of the soldiers 
from Cyrus's army, one of the Persian soldiers, decides to spy. He creeps up real close to the cliffs to spy on the soldiers of Sardis. Well, while he's watching, he's watching some soldiers way up there on the citadel. While he's watching, one of the soldiers accidentally drops his helmet over the side of the cliff. Imagine the Persian soldier's amazement when a few minutes later, that soldier comes out of the base of the cliff, gets his helmet, and goes back into the cliff. Secret passageway. So he goes and tells his commander, and the Persians, one by one, go up that secret passageway till they've got enough soldiers up there to capture the city. They capture and pillage the city. You would think that Sardis would learn from that mistake, right? No. Their city gets rebuilt. 300 years later, same thing happens. This time it's the Romans that take the city. So it's very appropriate that in his letter to Sardis that Christ would say, watch out or I'm going to come upon you suddenly like a thief in the night. That meant something to these guys. The city continued under Roman rule until about A.D. 17, which is during Jesus' lifetime. There was this gigantic earthquake. And a bunch of rubble fell down from the cliff onto the city below. Uh, Temples were destroyed. It was a massive earthquake that not only affected this city, but also Philadelphia, which is the next one we're going to study. It was a huge earthquake. The emperor Tiberius came to their aid. They rebuilt the city. And it continued in you know, relative prosperity for another 300 years. And then it kind of started, started to decline. If you go to Sardis, you can tour the ruins. Now, the ruins are magnificent in Sardis. If you, as you go in to Sardis, you can see that you would go in on this big paved street. And you've got columns on either side of you. Beautiful columns on either side. And behind the columns are rows of shops, kind of like a modern shopping mall. I mean, they're permanent little shops. And you can actually go in and see artifacts that were in those shops for sale. I mean, there's still remnants of stuff in there. It's an amazing place. And we watched um, some of this on the DVD series that the world may know that I mentioned in one of our other classes. Well, they do a, a tour, a visual tour of Sardis and show you some, some of this stuff. Well. Some of the things that they show you that is so interesting, and I want to tell you the name, the particular DVD that this is in is um, Salt of the Earth. Okay, so if you want to track that down, that's a, it's really, that whole series is excellent. But anyway, is it, when you go in, you actually can see that you come into, once you pass all the shops, you come in this big open area. And it's like five, more than five acres, okay, there in the middle. And over to one side is this gigantic gymnasium and baths, which were notorious for their horrible things that went on there. But in the gymnasium, they have excavated one of the largest or the largest synagogue ever excavated from this particular time period. That synagogue is inside the gymnasium. Now, it's interesting to go through that synagogue and see the concessions to Roman and Greek culture 
that were in that synagogue. It's a very worldly church. When you go in that synagogue, some of the first things you see are a pair of huge lions. Now, we don't know where those lions came from. We don't know why those lions are there. One explanation is it could be a representation of the Lion of Judah. But if that's the case, why are there two of them, right? I think a more likely explanation is related to the goddess that was worshipped in Sardis. Her name was Cabele. She was a fertility goddess, just like Artemis. And her symbol was the lion. And you remember those shops that I told you about? When you go through those shops, you see lions everywhere. You see as many lions in Sardis as you see longhorns in Austin. Okay? It's, there's just, they're everywhere you go. So, and in fact, in Madrid, Spain, I ran across a picture of this particular goddess riding her chariot with being pulled by two lions. There's a statue like that, a fountain like that in a, a plaza in Madrid. So this very famous Asian goddess. At any rate, you continue in and you see eagles, Roman eagles in this synagogue. So it's a wealthy synagogue because it's huge, you know. It's apparently been gifted. I can just see this happening. Some major donor of the synagogue gifts them with these valuable and important statues. You know, church has a dilemma now, right? Okay, so you can see how they decided. Well, also in Sardis is a temple to Artemis. Okay, we've seen some big temples to Artemis in Ephesus and some of the other cities that we've studied. So she's kind of a great big goddess. She's a fertility goddess also. Well, in the temple to Artemis, back in the corner, are the remains of a little Christian church. Disturbing, huh? When Jesus talks to the church at Sardis, he characterizes himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God, which when we studied this at the, in the, at the very beginning of Revelation, we looked at how that represented the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, and we know the Holy Spirit rests on Jesus. Okay? He holds the, the very essence, the life, the spirit of God. And he's also the one in this particular letter, he describes himself as holding the seven stars in his hand, which are the seven spirits of the churches, okay, which is, quote, the life, the spirit of the churches. So he is portraying himself as the life with a capital L. He talks to Sardis about their inner life. He says, you know what, you got a lot of activity going on. And it's worthless. Because what I see on the inside is filthy. He says, in fact, what I see on the inside, most of it is dead. There's just the smallest little flicker of light left. And you need to fan that flame. Because otherwise, it's going out. Sounds like some of my house plants. But, but I don't talk to him enough. What he says, the one of the ways he knows this, and the thing he points to though is very interesting. He says, "Your works are not complete before my God." There has been a lot about works in these letters, hasn't there? 
You see, I think you see here more than anywhere in the Bible, with the exception of James, the link between faith and works. And works being a natural outpouring of the inner self. Christ here is saying, you know, something's happened. This link has been broken. You got the works and you let the other part die. And we know how true that is, that once you've got a work started, it kind of self-perpetuates, right? Organizations self-perpetuate and they lose the spirit, the life. The word complete here is an interesting word. It's pleuroo is how you pronounce that. It means to cram as in cramming a net full of fish. Okay, this is the, how, how your works should, should be completed before God. It means to level up as in filling up a hole. Completely fill it up, level it out. It means to finish a task. And the last one that I under, underline for you, I think is wonderful. It's to coincide with a prediction. It's to compare the prediction with the outcome and see if they match. And that's the one that I think is most telling. Because remember when we studied last week Ephesians 2 verse 10, where it said that God prepares our works beforehand for us to walk in? Christ is saying, here's the works that were prepared, and here's you. Not the same. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly. This little church does not have life abundantly. They missed the boat somewhere. They were in danger of dying altogether. And Christ calls to them. His words were, remember what it was like when you received the word. Remember what it was like when you, when you really heard it. Apparently they're not hearing it anymore. Remember what it was like when you heard it. Come back. It's, it's like he's calling to somebody in a coma. Do you remember this? Do you remember what was meaningful? And they don't come back. You know, he's calling to them to come back. He says, you know what? If you don't wake up, you will be caught unawares, just like you were in history. Your riches will be taken away this time, just like they were before. But this time, it's your eternal riches that get taken away. This time, it has permanent consequences. Sardis was comfortable. Sardis was affluent. Sardis had works going on. Everybody admired this church. They admired the Christians in it. I'm sure they were movers and shakers in the community. And they were comfortable. When you feel comfortable, you need to pause and think about it. Because it is not comfortable to worship the living God. It is painful to submit to discipline. It is painful to submit your works to the fire of the Spirit. I mean, I don't see how it could help from being painful because we cannot do perfect works, you know. No matter how hard we try to walk in the works that God has prepared beforehand, we're not going to do it great, are we? We're not going to be perfect. We have it. Sardis is like the rest of us. They had built works of wood and straw. Okay. In and of ourselves, that's all we could do. The only way we're going to build works that are of value are if we walk in the works God does, not the works we created. Well, Sardis had created their own works here. They had works of wood and straw on the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
And they had no idea what signs would attend his coming. Because they didn't have their eyes on him. Look at Malachi 4.1. This is a great illustration of what a different perspective you can have on the day of the Lord. Here's what it says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. He's not talking about two different days there. That's not two different days. That is the day of the Lord. The evildoers get totally burned up. Okay, It is a day of great terror. It is a catastrophe as far as they're concerned. But for us, we are finally free. We are free like little calves let out of the stall. And we just go skipping around basking in the sunlight. Christ goes on to say that there's a few names, a few people in Sardis. That he says, he uses a metaphor here, that have not soiled their garments, but would walk with him dressed in white. And this reminded me of a prayer that is in Isaiah. And Isaiah is praying about the nation of Israel at this point. And I, and I, but they were in a similar predicament as Sardis. Let's look at Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Look at that phrase about garments. You see, the garment that Christ sees is the garment of our works. And Christ told Sardis, your garment is filthy. He said, with the exception of a few of you. And for a few of you, you do have your eyes on God and are doing righteous deeds and you will walk with me in white so how do we prevent having filthy garments and not knowing it how can we avoid this problem well Isaiah knew the answer to that too look at the next verse 64 7 there is no one who calls on your name who arouses himself to take hold of you see right there he's saying this is the tonic this is the this is the answer to the filthy garments is to keep your eyes focused on God it's with God it's all about our direct relationship with him he really doesn't does not care how accomplished you are he does not care how much money you give to charity he does not care how good of a prayer you are in public okay he cares whether you are arousing yourself as as Isaiah says whether you're arousing yourself to take hold of him the focal point of our effort and our works can't be the recipient. That's where we mess up. We're doing it for the poor people. Okay, We're doing it for the lost. That's not who we should be doing it for. The focus of our works needs to be God. We're doing it for God. And he's taking care of the rest of it. For one thing, James 4.8, James says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Okay, so there's nothing magic about this. You take the first step. God does the rest. Okay, but drawing near to God has a particular look and continue on in James. This is what it looks like. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Okay, Which isn't to say that our walk isn't joyful, but this is a call to come back to the altar. and Come back for the fire. Come back for the discipline. And our pattern for this is Jesus. Jesus says our works need to be absolute mirrors of what we see God doing. In John 5.19, Jesus is speaking here. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. To Sardis, the people who were still faithful, who were, whose garments were not filthy rags, were people whose works were a natural outpouring of the Spirit of, of the Holy Spirit that's, that's in them. And God promised them garments of purest white. He didn't say they had manufactured garments of purest white. He promised them garments of purest white. And that's the difference. Because none of us is worthy. We cannot be worthy. So I gave you a paraphrase. Our, our worthiness is a free gift from God. It happens when we draw near to God. We draw near to God and Christ says if we will do that, he will make us worthy. In fact, he has already made us worthy. I gave you a paraphrase of Romans 3.23 through 25. For everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. We are made worthy as a gift. Just because of God's grace by allowing us to be saved from death because Christ Jesus died in our place. And I printed for you the real verses so you can check that out. But sometimes Paul's writing is hard to sort out. So I paraphrased it, paraphrased it here. There's another place in Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So I think, Linda, the answer to your question is how do we reconcile this, is that we simply recognize that we are incapable of creating works that are not wooden straw. That the only way that we create works that are durable is by recognizing that God created the work and we are just called to walk in faithfulness. And by our drawing near to God, focusing on God, and walking where he puts us, we will be, we are already made worthy. And that's by grace, only by grace. I don't think I'm the first person that's ever struggled. No. And James always disturbs me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's how I interpret this stuff anyway. You know, I think every, like, like Paul says, everybody has to work through his salvation alone with fear and trembling. You know, you, you have to work this out for yourself. It doesn't help just to hear the words. It doesn't necessarily help to hear my interpretation of this. It's not going to do any good unless you grab hold of it yourself. So let's go on to see what the promise is to those in Sardis who overcome. He says in verse 5, 
Those who, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, there's an interesting term, the book of life. What's that? That's the first time we ran across that. It's referred to several times in scriptures, and I think that we need to start with understanding what its purpose is so that it can give us a context for understanding the other scriptures about it. Its purpose is actually described in Revelation at the end, in Revelation 20, um, beginning in verse 11. Its purpose is for use in the final judgment. Listen, Listen what it says. This is called the Great White Throne Judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, that's plural, books, were opened. Another book, that's a different book, was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, if you read that carefully, you can see that the books, plural, are where our works are recorded. Okay? But those books are not what determine our salvation. Our works is not what determines our salvation. Our works is what determines our reward. Okay? Our salvation comes from Christ and Christ alone from belief in Christ and it says if your name is in the book of life I mean you live forever with Christ if it's not in the book of life you die okay in the end we go one place or the other that's salvation that's what salvation does for you okay salvation is 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 what matters in the book of life all right so you've got different books there at the end there are some uh, now that we know the purpose of the book of life now let's look at some of the more difficult passages about it in Scripture. First, to do this, I want to, I want to read you about how it affected the Israelites, where it was referred to with the <coughs> Israelites. And as we read, I want you to just think about the impression you get about the book of life. Because the hard part about this book, the hard question is, is this book within time or outside of the chronology of time? Okay. It's an eternal book, and you have to decide for yourself, is it subject to the limitations of time or not? Okay, so let's read about this. Deuteronomy 9.11. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. This is the part where Moses, he's talking to Moses. He's gone up on the mountain. He's talking to God. He's getting the Ten Commandments. He's getting the law. This is like world-changing event, right? Well, he's been gone for over a month, and the Israelites gave up on him and started saying, well, Moses is dead. He's never coming back. We've got to make a new God now. So they made the golden calf, and they're down there worshiping the golden calf and having an orgy. Okay? God says, Moses, they're down there having an orgy. You've got to go back down. And God says, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. Isn't that interesting? That even when God was getting ready to utterly blot out the people of Abraham, okay, 
utterly blot out Israel, he already had another plan for our redemption in mind. He'll just call Moses and, and, and build him up into a nation. Moses was preventing God from blotting out Israel. And God says, get out of my way. And Moses says, no. Look what he says in Exodus 32. Same story, but, but here's what he says. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. And the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Okay, this is a very personal thing. You don't get to do it for somebody else. Okay, and nobody else is going to, has the power to cause you to be blotted out of the book of life. Moses even offered, he said, just blot me out and save them. Does the language that's being implied mean that you are blotted out from that point forward? Or does it mean you're blotted out as if you were never there at all? Look at, look at Psalm 9 verse 4. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. There's tons and tons of scripture about this book of life. And it's not definitive what that blotting out means. You know it means you're not there at the end. The question is, where does it mean that you're not there forever on both ends? You, you see what I'm saying? Okay. I personally believe it means you're blotted out as if you were never there. Okay. That's my personal interpretation of that. The, there is a scripture in Revelation 13.8, and this is the one that causes all the trouble. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. That's the Antichrist he's talking about. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Now, there are whole chunks of Protestants who believe this means that some people's names were never in the book of life to start with. And that they had no hope of being saved. And they believe that there were whole chunks of people whose names were always in the book of life. And no matter what they do, they're going to be saved because God is going to draw them to himself and there's nothing they can help about that. They're going to get saved. That's the elect. You got it. This is the, the doctrine of the elect or predestination. It's all tied up in what's called Calvinism. John Calvin was like the generation after Martin Luther and Calvin is is where the roots of the Presbyterian church are. That is a Calvinist denomination, though many Presbyterians would be shocked to know they believe this. (laughs) (laughs) But um, that's where this comes from. I think that it it is now and always has been God's will that everyone be saved. I think when you go back to the creation and you go back to the Garden of Eden, God did not say, now Adam and Eve, when you have kids, you've got to segregate them between the ones that are saved and the ones that aren't. Okay? I, I just, that just doesn't compute to me that that would be, enter in to God's mind. That you're going you know, to have Adam and Eve in the perfect Garden of Eden and you're going to have some people saved and some not. It's just, it, it just doesn't make a lot of intuitive sense. Yeah. yeah. If, if it's predestined, then he, 
You know, there's arguments on both sides. So I don't want to belittle the argument because it does say, you know, your name's not in there from the foundation. And, and like I pointed out, how you interpret that hinges on whether you think that book of life is inside or outside the restriction of time. Okay. Another question to me, and that is, if, if you blot it out on both ends, then, then it means that you either go to heaven or you don't go anywhere. Well, you go to heaven or you go to the lake of fire. I mean, you've got two choices. If you were never there, how can you go to the lake of fire? No, no. It's not that you didn't exist. It's that your name got blotted out of the book of life. So you, st- you exist, but you got taken off of the book of the Lamb. You're no longer his. Also, the question is whether or not, if your name was there and it's blotted out forever, it's as though your name was never there. Right, right, right. And we just read about a way, as you said, that, that God, even after the fall of Adam and Eve, we, we have studied how God just continually tried to come up with ways to save us. Okay, it's, it's obvious the whole force and impetus of his love is to save us. And the, there we saw he had a backup plan with Moses. Okay, and we are, the, the, we are heirs of the very best way, which was Jesus Christ. And Jesus' good news was that everybody can be saved. I want you to look at the very last teaching that Jesus gave his disciples Luke 24:45 Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem And and then my favorite verse Peter and Peter who confirmed this 2 Peter 3:9 actually The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. He's just being patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So somebody, I can't remember who just said this, so if that's the case, why do we have a second death? Okay, why why was that invented? This is great. Look at what Jesus had to say about this. Matthew 25, it's a long passage, but it's worth it. So he's telling, he's doing a teaching, and he says, you know, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations are going to be gathered before for him, and he's going to separate us into two piles, like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he's going to turn to the people on his right. And he's going to say, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he said, and then he goes on to the famous part. I was hungry. You gave me to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me to drink. And they say, when did we ever do that? And he says, you did it when you did it to the least of my people. Then he turns to the people on the left and he says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and the angels. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me, etc., etc., etc. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Look at the bolded parts. The eternal fire was intended, it was created for what? The devil and his angels. Is, are men in there? Is that like in the sentence anywhere? 
that second death was created for spirits that had sinned not for men look at look at what we were created for that's up in the top part verse 34 come inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world that's where that's what men were destined for all men the problem is of course that some men have chosen to follow satan and they will share in his fate which is the second death Jesus made it possible for anyone who believes in him to escape Satan and to escape that second death and look what Christ now let's look back at what Christ says to the, to the people in Sardis Revelation 3 5 he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garnet, garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life you see Christ is the one who owns that book. It is the book of the Lamb. It is his role of honor. Okay. Those are the people who belong to him. And he is the one who can erase them. I don't see how Christ can be eternal on either end and that book not be eternal on either end. Okay. But that's just my opinion. You can see there's like, you know, room for a difference of opinion over this. And I really, I can sit in the same pew with the Calvinists. I really can. As long as as it does not prevent us from preaching the good news of Christ to everyone and offering salvation to anyone who who wants to come with us to eternal life. And then the greatest promise of all, to he who overcomes, Jesus will stand up and say our name before God and all of the angels. You personally. Isn't that amazing? We have finished Sardis and we're ready to go on to Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia is a church that's got a ton of stuff in it, and we're going to have to define some terms uh, before we get very far in Philadelphia. Let's read the first, first verse. This is Revelation 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, says this. Philadelphia is another town right in that same vicinity as Sardis, located just up the river from Sardis, in fact. But what a difference in these two churches. Sardis was dead. Philadelphia was a stronghold of Christianity. This is one of the churches that Christ has nothing bad to say about. And in fact, this little church continued for more than a thousand years after this letter was written. And during that time, they underwent two separate, basically, sieges. Okay, They they existed in the middle of overwhelming odds. Christ describes himself as holy and true and holding the key of David. That's actually a quote from a messianic prophecy in Isaiah, which is in Isaiah 22:20. 20. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. 
Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. Now, wait a minute. I said this was a messianic prophecy, right? It's talking about some guy named Eliakim. What's, what's with that noise? Well, because of what Jesus says and because of what he taught the disciples and the apostles, there are many Old Testament scriptures that you would never guess were messianic except for knowing what the teaching of Christ was, where he particularly claims that scripture as belonging to him. So Eliakim was an actual person, okay, back in the Old Testament, but this prophecy was was about Jesus. Jesus is the one, as we just saw, who describes himself as holding the key of the house of David. He holds it eternally. Eliakim just holds it for for a while. I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Okay, so direct quote, right? Now, we know that Christ has been describing himself in little bits and pieces from chapter 1. So let's go back to chapter 1 and look for this description of himself in chapter 1. Find, find keys in chapter 1. Look around 17 or 18, somewhere around in there. He says, do, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, right? Which is exactly how he's been describing himself. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Nowhere in the description of chapter 1 does he say anything about the key of David. But he does say he has the key of death and Hades. Does that mean they're the same thing? Are they different keys? Are they the same keys? What's the deal? Well, there's another place in Matthew chapter 16 that I think is, is helpful to read. It's 13 through 19. And it says, it's a story of Jesus and he's near the end of his ministry here. And he's with his disciples and he says, hey guys, who do people say the Son of Man is? What are, what are people saying about me? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah and some say you're Jeremiah and some people just say you're just a great prophet. And Jesus says to them, well, what do you say about me? Who do you think that I am? And Peter pops up and he says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. We, we know who you are. And Jesus looked at him and he said, Blessings on you, Peter. Because nobody told you that. The Holy Spirit told you that. There's no other way you could know that. Except that the Holy Spirit told you in your heart. And he said, I say to you that you are Peter. And that word, mean, the name Peter means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, almost a direct quote from Isaiah, right? The keys of heaven, what you shut can't be opened, what you open can't be shut. But it's linked there, and it says, the gates of Hades will not overcome you. Well, what? how are you going to open a gate? Unless you have a battering ram. How are you going to open a gate? With a key. What keys does he have? The keys to the kingdom of heaven. 
He's got all the keys. He's got all the keys. So I kind of see these keys as like master, the master's keys, okay? The master keys, all right? I, it doesn't say they're the same, but I believe symbolically they mean the same thing, okay? I think the key to the house of David is much greater. You've got the key to the kingdom on a positive side, but on the flip side, you have the key and the power over death and Hades. Death and Hades are very important players in Revelation. They actually are personified as entities, as spirits, in addition to Hades being a place. Um, and, it, and they're talked about, we just read the verse um, about their ultimate fate. Remember, they are thrown into the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. So they're allowed to exist all the way up to the great white throne judgment. That's how we know that death, when it's referred to here, is the first death. It's the physical death, the one that we experience. Christ conquered that because he came and gave us eternal life. Okay. He saved us from the second death, not the first death. We all are human and will die. But Christ saved us from eternal death. So there's a whole lot of confusion in the Christian world about death and Hades. Hades especially. Death we get. Hades is confusing. Is it hell? Well, if it's hell, is it the same thing as the lake of fire? How can it be the same thing as the lake of fire if Hades gets thrown into the lake of fire? You know, what about there's places in the Bible that are termed the abyss. There's a place called Tartarus. There's paradise. There's heaven. There's these, all these terms. So we're going to, I'm, I'm going to stop class a little early today because I don't want to start on all that unless we can do it all at once, okay, because it's all of a piece. But next time when we talk, we're going to start and look at the terms related to death and Hades. So number one, that you understand what they are so that you understand who's in them and who is not. And so you understand how they've changed over time because their role... And who is in them has changed over time with the coming of Christ.